Today's passage comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. If you're not turning there on your mobile device, you can find it on page 968 in your chair Bibles. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. It's been a long time since I'm back in the pulpit, so I'm really glad for this opportunity to do so. Let me pray for us. Lord, it has been a harrowing and distracting week for me, and it may have been also for others. And I recognize my inadequacy in bringing your word. But would you take away our distractions, Lord, so that we can hear rightly from you, so that I can speak the words that you want me to say, and that we all collectively can hear from your word. We pray all this through your son's name. Amen. Now, the Walton School of Business put out a podcast last year saying that timing is everything. Timing is the key to maximizing donations, particularly from people who have an existing relationship to your organization. So that's why you see so many solicitations for charitable giving during Christmas or leading up to Giving Tuesday. But for Paul itself, for Paul, the central reason that we give generously is rather our view of who God is our view of who God is. If we have this view that our God is a taking God, a God who demands things, then we might give, but we will not give generously, but we will give grudgingly, lest he zaps us. But if our view of God is a tit-for-tat God, a tit-for-tat God, we would give with ulterior motives. We would give with the hope that we get something back in return. Maybe it's a good job, maybe it's a house, good health, or whatever. But the God that we serve 
And the God that Paul wants us to know is that our God is a giving God. Our God is a giving God who graciously gives of himself first and foremost. And that in response to such a God, Paul tells us that we should give generously and joyfully. And so the primary claim of today's passage ultimately is that as disciples of Jesus, let us give graciously in response to what God has graciously given to us. Now, we are in a series in terms of the marks of a disciple. And one of the marks of a disciple is someone who gives generously. So if you are a visitor, or if you are someone who has not made the decision to follow Jesus, then please do know that we are not asking you for money. Rather, this message perhaps can possibly help you understand why disciples of Jesus are to give generously, and that we give generously in response to what God has graciously given to us. Now, the passage that we're taking a look at today, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, it occurs in the larger context of 2 Corinthians 8 to 9. And in these two chapters, the specific issue is the collection. Ultimately, the collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was going through a difficult time financially because of famine. And so because of the need, Paul therefore encourages the church that he is ministering to, the church in Macedonia, the church in Corinth. Paul encourages these primarily Gentile churches to take up a collection and give to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. Now, it's a context is very specific to that, but despite the specificity of this context, there are larger implications for how we are to give. And taking a look then at the structure of this passage that we're taking a look at today, Paul uses an agricultural imagery, uses the imagery of sowing, and through that imagery, Paul tells us how we are to give, and he gives us three reasons why we are to give. How we are to give is that ultimately that we are to sow generously or that we are to give generously. And what are the three reasons why we are to give? The first one is that God abundantly supplies the seed for your sowing. That means God abundantly supplies the resources that you need to give. The second reason is that God multiplies the harvest, the harvest of your giving. And what is the harvest of this giving? is that it ultimately helps other saints and that it ultimately leads to the glory of God. And the final reason why we ought to give is that because God has given us the best gift. God has given us the ultimate gift in Jesus. So we'll take a look at all of these steps in order, all right? So the first step is basically in terms of how. How are we to give? And Paul says that we are to sow generously, or in other words, we are to give generously. Now, he first brings up this sowing imagery in verse 6. So he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. So Paul begins with an agricultural principle. The person who sows little will reap little. The person who sows a lot will reap a lot. Now, Paul, of course, knows that on some occasion, you can have a poor harvest despite sowing a lot due to disease, bad weather, or whatever. But as a general principle, as a general principle, 
this agricultural principle stands. So Paul then uses this agricultural imagery and applies it to financial stewardship, so that a Christian is viewed as a sower, and the seed is then the gift. So that ultimately here, the gift is viewed as a seed, and the outcome of this giving is viewed as the harvest. In essence, generous contributions that are freely given will generate a rich and abundant harvest, a rich and bountiful yield. Now, does this sound like the prosperity gospel? You know, you give and then you get a lot in return. Sounds like it? It could be, but no, it's not a prosperity gospel here because the motivation for our giving, the motivation for this giving, is not self-interest. It is not self-interest, but it is to bless others. Moreover, the harvest that comes as a result of your giving is not so much that you will be materially blessed, you will be materially enriched, but that because of your giving, the needs of others will be met and praise will abound to God. Paul unpacks this later in verses 12 to 14, which we will take a look at it later. But for now, the principle that Paul exhorts us to is that we are to sow generously. We are to give generously. But what does generous giving look like? Verse 7 gives us some ideas. He says that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. What you have decided in your heart to give. And so Paul tells us that we have to be deliberate in our giving. Generous giving is deliberate. It is intentional. Now, just as we don't pray fervently, without deliberately, intentionally setting aside time to pray, so also we will not give generously without deliberately and intentionally planning or setting aside what we are to give. But in order to do this, it really means that you do not live beyond your means. That is, you do not spend more than what you earn. It also does not mean that you live at your means where you spend exactly what you earn, but that you live below your means and that you spend less than what you earn so that you have something to give. But in order to do this, it means creating a budget. Because if you don't create a budget, but wait until you have paid all your bills and also for all of the other, other things that are necessary to move you up to the next socioeconomic level, there will not be much left to give. You probably will not give much. But in creating a budget, that means making difficult choices. It may mean eating out less. It may mean that the vacations that you go on may not be as lavish as others. It may mean only buying a house and applying for a mortgage that you can reasonably afford. So Paul here says that generous giving is deliberate. But generous giving is also purposeful. It is not impulsive. It is not impulse giving. It is something that you have decided in your heart. Now, how many of you are impulse shoppers? Nobody? Well, I can tell you that I am an impulse shopper. Karen, on the other hand, is a very deliberate shopper. So she looks at all the ads 
and only buys what are the things that she writes down on her on her list. But for me, I go to the supermarket and say, "Hey, I like that. That looks good. You know, I buy that. I buy that. And hey, that's a big sale. I need to buy some of that." But you know, with impulse shopping, what happens? Regret. Regret. A lot happens. That shit. Yeah, it was a good sale, but it doesn't fit me. It's too big, you know, and it doesn't fit the rest of my clothes. So that is regret itself. And the same thing too is that the danger of impulse giving is that we regret our decision when we do not really investigate into what is the purpose of the organization that we give. But we give impulsively. We regret our decision to give, or we get burnt out, or we develop compassion fatigue. We develop compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue arises when we are constantly bombarded by all the various needs that are in the world. When we become overwhelmed by the sheer amount of needs in the world, we become jaded and hardened, and we develop compassion fatigue because we can't satisfy all the needs. But if we can't satisfy all the needs in the world, then we have to give strategically. And that we have to set priorities in what we have to give, and so for our family, besides support for the local church, there are certain areas where we feel that God has led us to give, and such areas include theological education and compassion projects. So we tend to be selective; we tend to be purposeful in our giving. So half of our giving goes to the local church, and then the other half goes to support other projects that God has given us a burden for. So one of the first thing about generous giving is that it is deliberate and that it is purposeful. But the other aspect of deliberate generous giving is that there is joyful willingness. There is joyful willingness to give. Paul says this here: your giving should not be reluctantly, should not be reluctant or under compulsion, but you should be a cheerful giver. Ultimately, the attitude that marks our giving. Should be one of joyful willingness. We give not because we are compelled to give, but we give in response to what God has graciously given to us. We give not reluctantly, but cheerfully and joyfully, because ultimately God loves a cheerful giver. Now, why does God love a cheerful giver? Why does God delight in cheerful giving? Because it reflects his own manner of giving, it reflects who he is—that he is a gracious giver. He is not a miserly giver. He is one who delights to give good things to his children, and so God delights in us to imitate him. And so, therefore, God loves a cheerful giver. So, in summary, how are we to give, and that we are to give? Generously. Now let's take a look at the first reason of why we are to give generously. First reason is that God abundantly supplies the seed for sowing. Ultimately, the resources that we have are given by God. Taking a look first here, you see that God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need. I'll take a look at verse ten. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. Or in verse eleven, you will be enriched in every way. Ultimately, here God abundantly supplies the seed for sowing. In other words, 
God gives us the resources to give generously. In other words, the resources that we have are given by God. In other words, that means that we are just merely stewards of the resources that God has given us. We are just stewards of the resources that God has given us. Let me ask you your question. Does God want you to be a steward of what you own? Does God want you to be a steward of what you own? How many say yes? How many say no? <laughs> Karen says no. Well, it's actually a trick question here, all right? Because if you own it, you are no longer a steward of it because a steward does not own the resources. Let me give you an illustration in terms of what it means to be a steward. Let's say we are giving the offering plate, we pass the offering plate around, all right? Now, instead of taking your own wallet, you take the wallet of your neighbor, all right? And you then decide what you should take out of that wallet and put into the offering plate. And what would you do? The money is not yours, but you will probably give all of it. Why? Because the person next door will give all of your money that is in your own wallet. All right? So ultimately here, the whole understanding of a steward is that we don't own the resources, that God has just entrusted that to us, and that we are then to use it wisely as his stewards. So God wants you to be a steward of the resources that he has entrusted you with. Now, ultimately, what is the purpose of God's blessing us with the seed, with the abundant seed? Ultimately, it's so that we can be generous. You see that in verse 8, having all that you need. Notice, not having all that you want, but having all that you need where your needs are met, ultimately so that you will abound in every good work. The purpose of all these resources is that you are bound in every good work, and the good work here in this context is generous giving. Or take a look at verse 11. So that you can be generous on every occasion. The purpose of the resources that God has given us is not just to supply our present need, but it's also meant for us to be generous. It's also meant so that we can be generous and share with others. Now, in the midst of all of this passage here, Paul quotes a psalm from Psalm 112, verse 9. It reads here that they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, Psalm 112 here describes the character of those who fear the Lord. The character of those who fear the Lord. And one of the characteristics of those who fear the Lord is that they freely scatter their gifts to the poor. Paul therefore says that when you give generously, you are imitating those who fear the Lord, who freely scatter their gifts to the poor, and ultimately their righteousness endures forever. Now righteousness in the context of Psalm 112 refers to acts of righteousness that those who fear the Lord do. So these are works done by people in accordance with God's law. The language then that their righteousness endures forever means that the effect, the effect and the reward of their generous act will endure forever, meaning that there are eternal and spiritual ramifications of the generous acts that we do in that they are making 
an impact and making an eternal impact for the kingdom of God. They are making an eternal impact for the kingdom of God. Now, you all know that this earth is not a permanent home. We are just sojourners. We are just travelers here. And we are just passing through. And that our permanent home is in heaven. So, for example, give me an example. When you stay at a hotel, do you put up pictures of your family at, in your hotel? No. In fact, I, when I go to a hotel, I don't even put my clothes in the closet, you know. I just leave it just in the luggage back here. Because ultimately, I'm not going to stay there permanently. I'm having to move on. So here too, our lives here in this world, they are not going to be permanent. But Paul tells us that even though we are just passing through, nonetheless, through our generous acts of giving, they can create an eternal impact for God. Then they can create an internal impact because of what you are doing. They can accrue to help build up the kingdom of God. And therefore, there are eternal ramifications, there are spiritual ramifications of our giving. Our giving has eternal and spiritual ramifications. So as a summary here that this section teaches us that God abundantly supplies the resources that we need to be generous. Now some of you here may be saying that you are living at a poverty line and earning minimum wages. You might say that God has not blessed you as materially as compared to others who live in the North Shore. But even though your earning power is not as great as others, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be generous within, within the framework of your limited income. And that we should learn to be generous within the framework of whatever income we have. Now here then, ultimately, here Paul says that an attitude of joyful willingness is more important than the amount we give. The attitude is more important. So in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, in the chapter before, Paul says that for if the willingness is there, that gift is acceptable according to what you have, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Why? Why is it acceptable? Because God is more interested in the transformation of our character than in our gift. God is much more interested in you than in your gift. Because the last thing that God wants us to do is that we give, but that our hearts are still rebellious towards him. For God ultimately wants you rather than your money. So if you're living near the poverty line, God calls you to be generous within the framework of your income. And that may mean giving less than 10% of your income, but that you can also supplement that, for example, by giving of your time and skills. But if you're living above the poverty line, God again calls you to be generous within the framework of your income. And that may mean giving 10, 15, 20, 25, or even 30% of your income. So even though we might not be as financially well-off as others, we can nonetheless be generous even within our limited resources. So that's the first reason here that God abundantly supplies the seed. Now the second reason here in terms of why 
we are to give generously is that God multiplies the harvest. God multiplies the effect of our giving, and that this giving ultimately glorifies God and unifies the church. Now here it says in, in verse 10, moving a little bit before that, it says that he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now righteousness in this context again is ultimately the acts, your generous act of giving. And so the language that God here will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness means that God will multiply the effect and result of your giving. God will multiply the effect and result of your giving. But what is the result of our giving? What does our giving ultimately produce? And Paul here says that ultimately it will God that our giving here will supply the needs of the Lord's people. So the first effect of your giving, it will supply the needs of the Lord's people, but more importantly, it will overflow in many expressions of thanks to God. Our giving ultimately overflows in praise to God. And these two here are not equal. For Paul, praise and glory of God is always the highest and ultimate good. So therefore, Paul expands on this idea of what it means that it will result in praise and glory to God in the next verse, in verse 13. So he says that others will then begin to praise God. Notice, it's not praising you, but it's praising God. In the secular world, when, we, when benefactors give, what do they do? They praise them and they erect a building and put their name on the plaque. And then when someone else gives a little bit bigger, they take their name down and put the other person's name there. All right? But here, ultimately, our giving is to result in praise to God. And they will praise God for two things here. Firstly, for the obedience that accompanies your confession to the gospel of Christ, meaning that they praise God for your obedience to the gospel of Christ Jesus. A gospel that ultimately reminds believers that they are part of the body of Christ and therefore have a responsibility to help those inside and outside the family of believers. Secondly, they will also praise God for your generosity in sharing with them everything else. But there's another impact, there's another result of our giving, in that our giving strengthens the unity of the global church. It strengthens the unity of the global church. So in verse 14 here, Paul says, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Paul says that as the Corinthian church, the gift to the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem church will reciprocate with prayers and thanksgiving for them. There is therefore this interdependency and unity between a Gentile and a Jewish church, for they are both parts of the body of Christ. And there should also be this sense of interdependency within the global church today. We may, say, we may send aid to the church in China, in India, or in the Sudan, but there's also so much that we can learn from them. And on many occasions, the churches in China, India, or the African continent are praying for us much more fervently than we are praying for them. And our giving then is a tangible representation of the unity of the global church. It tells the world that here, despite our languages, despite our cultures itself, 
that we have something in common, and that something that we have in common is Christ Jesus. So ultimately, summary here, why should we give? The second reason is that because God multiplies the effects, the impact of our giving. Ultimately, our giving will result in praise to God and also demonstrates to the world the unity of the global church. Now, coming to the last reason here of why we are to give generously is because God has given us the ultimate gift in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, it says here, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what is this indescribable gift? It may very well be the verse ahead where it says the surpassing grace of God that has been given to the Corinthian church. That is the grace that God has given to the Corinthian church that sparked all this giving. And that would fit the immediate context. But the language of indescribable, language of inexpressible gift, surely must point to another reason. And that gift must be none other than Jesus himself. And that gift Paul has already mentioned in the chapter before. In the chapter before, in chapter 8, verse 9, he says that, For you all know the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now this verse speaks of Christ's incarnation and crucifixion. The Lord Jesus, although he himself was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own benefit. Rather, he gave up the riches of his heavenly existence and he became poor and that he emptied himself and by taking on the form of sinful humanity and becoming obedient to God the Father even to the point of death on the cross. He became poor by taking on the form of a slave, and that he came to serve and not to be served. He became poor by becoming like us and taking on him our shame and our guilt for the wrongs that we have done. And so ultimately here, at the end of this entire section on giving in chapters 8 and 9, Paul then reiterates the central reason why we are to give, and that ultimately we give because of God's indescribable gift of Jesus. We give because our God is a giving God, and our God is a God that has given the most precious gift that he could ever possibly give us. We give because of God's indescribable gift of Jesus. You know, the God who created us, he became like one of us, and he died for us so that we might become rich, so that we might be spiritually rich both now, here, and in the future on account of the salvation that's made possible by his death. We are rich in that we are adopted into God's family. We are rich in that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And we are rich in that we are being changed from one glory to another glory until we receive the glorified body that Jesus himself had. We are rich in that we are now able to reclaim the honor that we lost 
when we sinned and rebelled against God in Genesis 3. Now, there's a slight caveat here in that ultimately, when Paul's intent on mentioning Christ is not that the Corinthians might become poor and that the Jewish Christians might become rich. Paul clarifies this in verses 3.13-15 of chapter 8. Neither does Paul is calling us to abject poverty or asceticism, but rather Paul is calling us to imitate Jesus, to imitate his generosity. Because when we stand beside the cross, when we stand beside the cross and truly understand what Christ has done for us, it is hard to be selfish. It is hard to be selfish. It is hard not to be generous. And Paul therefore calls us to imitate Jesus. He calls us towards sacrificial and generous giving. And so in summary, we give generously because God has given us the ultimate gift in Jesus. Let me just end here with some applications and some thought. And I'll ask the question, what does it mean to give generously, and what does it mean to give sacrificially? Now, there are a lot of questions you know, about whether your giving should be based on your gross, on your net income, what percentage you should give. But I say that if these issues are preventing you from giving in the first place, just start somewhere. If you want to use gross income, fine. If you want to use net income, fine. It doesn't matter. Just start somewhere and ask yourself how you can be more generous each year. As for me, I use AGI, my adjusted gross income. The reason why I do that is because, hey, I've got a calculated area for Uncle Sam, so I know the figure, all right? So there's no dispute about that. There's also this issue in terms of tithing. Now, tithing is not commanded in the New Testament. It may surprise you, but tithing is not commanded in the New Testament. And there is no specific command to tithe in the New Testament. The only time where tithing is mentioned in the New Testament is in Matthew 23, 23. And there, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for ignoring the weightier matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness, even though they were scrupulously tithing the herbs, the fruits, the mints that they grew in the garden. And so Jesus tells them that they should have been more concerned about the weightier matters of the law, the justice, mercy, faithfulness, but at the same time, they shouldn't neglect tithing. But the reason why Jesus says that they still needed to tithe is because Jesus still lived under the Mosaic law. And tithing was very much connected, was very much connected to the temple and the sacrifices. It was part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But since that system has been fulfilled once and for all in Christ, there is no specific command to tithe in the New Testament this side of the cross. So there is no specific New Testament command that specifies a certain percentage as the minimum giving requirement. Now this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't want us to be generous and, or that he would think that we would do anything less than what was expected in the Old Testament. Rather, the structure of appeal 
for generous giving is different. The framework for giving is different, and that namely now we give because as a response to God's indescribable gift of Jesus. The whole entire framework has changed, and that we give as a response to God's indescribable gift of Jesus. Let me just share with you in terms of my, whole, my own journey of giving and in terms of how our family gives. And I do this uh, not because I want you all to praise me for what I'm doing or not because I want you all to shame me for what I'm not doing, but because I consider North South my family. I consider North South my home church. And I want to be as authentic as possible so that we can challenge one another in terms of how we can give generously. And so here, you know, that when I first became a Christian, and after that, when I started working, my giving was quite paltry. It was only about 2.5%. It gradually went up to about 5%. And then when I married my first wife, Jeannie, she challenged me to give 10%. And so we slowly worked up to that. And then when my Jeannie passed away and then I married Karen, Karen then challenged us to give 20%, and we slowly worked up to that. And all of this time, you know, there have been people who have been challenging me to be generous. After all, did Paul not say, it is more blessed to give than to receive? And so I tried to learn that, but I am struck by an example of someone, you know, that, and that someone of this example of giving, it's a pastor in Singapore, a pastor in Singapore. And this pastor had the vision from God, that God was calling them towards a discipleship ministry. And because he was so convicted by that, by that vision, he emptied his entire bank account and put it up for the building project. The church had three building projects, and through the three building projects, the church raised $67 million without going to the bank and being debt-free. But while human examples are good for inspiring us, for challenging us to give, ultimately Paul tells us here that the primary person, the primary human that we look to, the man God, Jesus itself, because he is the ultimate example of what generous giving is. That ultimately here, this God, man God itself, even though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we all, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, for those of you who are members of the church, you know that the elders sent out an email this week indicating that our church has a net deficit of about 28,000. So in light of today's sermon, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to write a big check out to the church? No, I think that is inadequate. Because first and foremost, we are to remember the gift that Christ Jesus himself gave to us. That he who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Secondly, we remind ourselves that God calls us to a life of discipleship that seeks to live with eternity's values in mind. And then thirdly, within that framework of gratitude, within that framework of discipleship, 
we sort out our finances and decide in our hearts what God requires of us in generous giving. It may be to give a gift, but the first but the first and foremost thing is that we give thanks to God for his indescribable gift of Jesus. You see, God is not so much interested in that you do the right thing or that you do the right thing for the right reason, but that you do the right thing for the right reason with the right attitude. So God is not so much interested that you give nor is he so much interested that you give for the right reason in response to the gratitude, in response of gratitude for his indescribable gift, but that we also give with the right attitude, and that we give joyfully, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, and that we give because of what God has graciously given to us. Let me pray for us. O Lord God, work in our hearts so that we are able to respond to the indescribable gift that Jesus has given in us. Work in our hearts so that we respond in faith, adoration, and gratitude. And within that framework of of the gospel itself, lead us to fresh paths of discipleship, obedience, generosity, and cheerful giving for Christ's sake. Amen.